And um, once you've turned to it, if you could look up, just to say, on a day like this, um, obviously, uh, Randy and I were evangelists. Our job, Ephesians 4, 10 and 11, is to equip God's people for works of service. Many of you will be in the pastor-teacher role to do the work of the evangelist. We're all called to be witnesses. But with that in mind, I find a day like this must start by saying, and, and do please do this, can you please listen today, not as a reservoir where it, you just hear it and it flows into you, you see, how did I find that, this, that, and the other, but listen as a river. So can you, at the start of the day, please jot down a non-Christian who you long to tell the gospel to, and a Christian who's not here, but you can pass this on to, so you can do a bit of training with them. So can we listen for them today? I find I always begin evangelism training with that because it transforms the listening. I'm listening for John and for Bill or for whoever it is. So can we jot those two down? And as we do that, as we think of others, as we think of training others, not just um, uh, finding ourselves helped, can we look at Luke 15 here? A passage we know well, but so, so great in what it teaches us about us, about God, And about the church, three things. So let's look at Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one of them. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I do love this little uh, uh, um, uh, series here. I just think it's it's staggeringly helpful, these, these lost and found stories for our evangelism. Number one, what's the first thing we learn here? Number one, brothers and sisters, we're lost. We're lost. Please jot it down and take it home and teach it. Jesus told them, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. So we are lost, and and that is the state that we're in. So just to say, um, as as we come to this passage here, and and we look at these stories, human beings are lost. And as you come to today, can I tell you, that underlines everything we're teaching. So please don't think of a warm and fuzzy, fluffy little lamb, green pastures and still waters... To be told you're a sheep in scripture is a spiritual insight. This is what I read in a book by a Welsh farmer who then became a pastor. He wrote this on this passage. A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its directions continually in a way that a cat or a dog does not. And even when you find a lost sheep, it rushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its forelegs and hind legs together, put it over your shoulders and carry it home. There's a new form of pastoral care. That is the only way to save lost sheep. And, uh, and what we're being told here is that, is that sheep don't follow the shepherd home. No, they've got to be carried home. And what does it mean in traditional language? What are we told here? That we're lost in sin. 
Uh, John Stott wrote this about the human condition. And what we're talking, of course, here is, please jot this down, is the word original sin. That's what underlies why we have to do this, original sin. John Stott wrote, Jesus taught that within the soil of every human heart there lies buried the ugly seeds of every conceivable sin. Evil thoughts, acts of fornication, theft, murder, adultery, ruthless, ruthlessness, greed, malice, fraud, indecency, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All 30 are evil things and they come out of the heart of every human This is Jesus Christ's estimate of fallen human nature. I met with someone on Sunday, and I was just staggered at their self-righteousness. And I said, we're just different creatures in terms of what you believe about yourself and what I believe about myself. And it's interesting, you see, when Jesus went among uh, 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 the, the, the people of Israel, what did they do? Did they hear and rejoice? No, they killed him. We're utterly hopeless, we're born sinful, we're unable to save ourselves. Solzhenitsyn um, said, I didn't believe in original sin. He said, then I went into the gulag and I started to believe it. Blaise Pascal said, nothing jolts us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet, but for this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we remain incomprehensible to ourselves. And I remember when Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 was first taught me when I was a schoolboy, and I remember thinking, at last someone has explained it. We're dead, in, we're dead in our transgressions and sins. We follow the devil. We're gratifying the sinful nature. I thought, at last, someone's given me the key. I knew it was this bad. A great relief to hear it. So something about ourselves, absolutely lost. We can't save ourselves. Something about God as we look down. Isn't it wonderful about God? I mean, to be sure, to be sure, God is holy and just. He's the judge of all the earth. He'll never come to terms or compromise with evil. But he is also a God of love and compassion, brothers and sisters. And please see what God does. First of all, he misses us. I mean, in this parable, the loser does not acquiesce to his or her loss. The shepherd misses his lost sheep. The woman misses her lost coin. He misses us. And then an all-out search is... is, I mean, I find myself wanting to weep as I read the word until. He went searching after me until he found me. And, 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 you know, God's love seeks us, the initiative in the person of Jesus. Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this all-out search takes place, and he suffers for us. I mean, there's no grudging calculation of the cost it will be for the shepherd to go after the lost sheep until he finds it. The woman sweeps the house until, until she finds it. Something so precious, so incalculably valuable has been lost you, you, me, that an all-out search takes place. He misses us, he seeks us, he suffers for us, and he rejoices to have us home. Verse 5, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then, of course, there's a party across heaven as one sinner comes to repentance. So something about us, we're lost, we're, we're, we're sheep, utterly ignorant, Something about God, he misses us, he loves us, he suffers for us, he rejoices to have us home. And then, and then lastly, something about the church. Just as we look down here, what have we, what have we got about the church? I mean, where, where's our identity? As a church, where is our identity? I, I love this. I was in India a while back and, um, a young girl had, or sort of teenage girl had failed some school exams and was terribly distressed. And her father put this on her pillow these words to her after these exams had been failed, which was a very big thing where she was in India. 
in Delhi. He wrote, What I want you to know is that you're very special to me no matter how you do in your studies. I'll not love you more or less depending on how you study. In fact, my love for you has nothing to do with your studies. And so this parable tells us something about a church when its identity is in the grace of God. And that is, of course, as we look down in verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And are we going to be a church that welcomes sinners and eats with them? Or are we going to be a church where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are those who actually go, no. So don't forget, these were people who stoned lepers. You know, a leper came near, you stoned them. And it's amazing how in our churches, uh, you know, so often we don't welcome sinners. I spoke to an evangelist in Texas and she said, honestly, for this church that, that I'm involved with, she says, they've put a welcome sign up outside the church and they think that's their evangelism done. But, I mean, are our arms open? Because what defined Jesus is he welcomed sinners as we've been welcomed. And what I love uh, today as we come to hear, um, my, my friend Randy, is that, is that he really has spent four decades working out how to welcome sinners, coming from a non-Christian Jewish family himself. So, brother, thank you for how hard you've worked to think about what it means to reach out to people. Great also to have um, people like the Childresses who are running the free recovery course. Um, that, that's getting huge take-up. It's an addiction course rooted in Galatians. Do have a word with them again. All about welcoming sinners and these people who are who are actually going, it's just, I am repetitively, deeply, so self-destructively in sin. What do I do? And this course they're running, do have a look at that next door. Um, but, you know, today is all about trying to get resources into your hands that welcome sinners. Um, do pick up the CE material. There's a card there on the back there. You can get a prize, 10 books or a, a, a pack. Again, fill it in, put it in. But again, it's about getting material into your hands. But we want to be people who welcome sinners. Let's pray as we begin. Father, please fill Randy with your spirit, with energy now as he comes to speak. Give us receptive hearts. Please help us to hear. And Lord, we're very, very grateful that when we were lost, we tell you we're like sheep that have gone astray. You came and found us. You searched for us until we'd been brought home. Lord, we long to just in a tiny way reflect your character, going after the lost until we find them. We can't do it ourselves. Please help us and train us today. Amen. Great. Thanks again. Well, I'm so very, very grateful for the opportunity to be with you. Um, been looking forward to this for quite a while. Pardon me. Um, I, I will confess at the beginning I am slightly intimidated because, as you can probably hear already, I do not have a British accent. <clears throat> Where I come from, British accents are very intimidating. Uh, you may not feel that way, but when Americans hear people with any, any variety of British accents, we just assume that they're brilliant. And, and it's especially true of, of pastors and preachers. All a preacher has to do, say, is turn to the prophet Isaiah, and we all, uh, uh, we panic. This person must be a genius. And um, so um, I, I just thought I'd tell you that right away. 
in case you didn't pick it up, I'm, I'm originally from New York. I could turn on my New York accent really sure, strong if you want me to, but you don't. Um, I've, I've worked for decades to try to lose that. It still creeps in every so often. Um, Rico mentioned that I come from a Jewish background, so who knows? Some Yiddish may float to the surface every so often. I apologize in advance. Uh, I, I also have to begin by telling you I'm, I'm always amazed at the opportunities I get and amused uh, that the Lord keeps using me in this task about evangelism because while Rico just said that we are both evangelists, he and I are very different kinds of evangelists. I'm an evangelistic chicken. I'm not one of those evangelists who just always loves to witness on street corners. I, I like to hide in my basement with my books Several years ago, there was a sale at a store nearby, and they had a sale on bookshelves. I bought two, and I spent an entire day moving around my books. It was the happiest day of my life. <laughs> so I, uh, I do find it amazing that the Lord uses me in this, this ministry to encourage the work of evangelism. Um, but I'm, I, I really do mean it. I'm an evangelistic chicken. I worked for many decades with a very evangelistic organization, Campus Crusade. You may know it now, know it now as Crew. And uh, we, all of our speakers at our national conferences were always these evangelists who, who they, they could not not evangelize. In fact, some of them said, I cannot even imagine not evangelizing. And I remember sitting there, I can imagine it very vividly. I remember um, uh, one speaker got a, a grimace look on his face. He said, I cannot sleep at night unless I have witnessed to one soul that day. And I thought, I'm sleeping just fine, buddy. I don't know. You, they have medication for that kind of stuff. You may want to see a doctor. Uh, I, when I switched and uh, started working with uh, the C.S. Lewis Institute, which has its office right near my home now, um, I, I, they said, we want to print up business cards for you. What, and, and they wanted me to help out with evangelism. And I, I said, could, I have, could it say on the card, evangelistic chicken? They, they, they said no. I thought, you know, Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert. Maybe I could say something Lewisian, the, the most reluctant evangelist. They, they said no. They, so they gave me the title of senior teaching fellow. I hope you're impressed. That's why I'm wearing a tweed jacket. Um, so, but no, seriously, I think uh, the more I uh, study this and talk to people and, and hear stories, I, I, I listen to a lot of stories of recent converts. That's where the area of my research has been recently. I, I find that the Lord regularly uses non-evangelists. The, the Lord uses the evangelistic chickens, uh, the ones who can imagine quite vividly not evangelizing. He uses us in our weakness. And, and what I find again and again and again is that evangelism occurs at this intersection of the supernatural and the human. On the supernatural side, it is only God that, that awakens the dead, that raises the dead, that opens blind eyes. Every single conversion is an absolute miracle. But then he also uses people in very, very human, almost seemingly everyday, ordinary, natural ways. Good conversations, good questions, listening carefully, trying to explain something, thinking deeply about how, how do I make this clear? Well, isn't, it, isn't it stunning that in, when Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him in Colossians 4, he said, pray that God may open up a door for the word. 
and pray that I may make it clear as I should. Isn't that the intersection there? We need God to open up the door and open up hearts and do what only he can do. And yet I need to evaluate. Am I clear? Is that the best word to use? Let me try that from another angle. And so today we're spending a lot more energy on the side of the human of how do we say that? How do we ask that? Um, But we must remember that we're engaged in this process and it's absolutely supernatural and it's wonderful. And the Lord uses the, the, the most unlikely of evangelists. Uh, those of us who would rather hide in our basement with our books. When I talk about evangelism, I, I think that we, we need at least three distinct skills in evangelism. There's the obvious skill of declaring the gospel. Can you state the gospel in a concise short presentation. That's very, very important. I hope you're skilled at that. Um, We're probably not going to spend a lot of time on that today. There's another skill of defending the gospel, apologetics, knowing how to answer the common questions that people ask. So if people say to you, why do you believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? Um, Why do you believe the Bible? And, And those kinds of common apologetic questions, we need to know how to defend the gospel. Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that today. We have some great resources at the book table. And in fact, in our day and age, I think we're we're living in a time of great, absolutely amazing apologetic wealth uh, available at our fingertips, uh, available at a click of uh, on the internet. We can have um, Ravi Zacharias come alongside and be our fellow evangelist with us. So, uh, so there's, there's great uh, wealth that we have in defending the gospel, but there's a third skill that I want to zoom in on of dialoguing the gospel. There's declaring the gospel, there's defending the gospel, there's dialoguing the gospel. And it's how to make evangelism more of a conversation, how to make it a two-way interaction. When I was trained in evangelism, it seemed to me, as I then started practicing and learning it, uh, it seemed to me that the method that I was trained in was um, I did all the talking. As the evangelist, I did all the talking. I proclaimed, I explained, and and I actually, I really didn't want them to say much other than, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. Uh, okay, and, and I really wanted a, b- a big uh-huh at the end, you know, okay. But, but um, as I, I, I started doing some training seminars in Jewish evangelism, like I said, I come from a Jewish background, and I said, you know, with Jewish people, it's just got to be more of a back-and-forth conversation. Jewish people want to do the equal amount or more of the talking. Um, Jewish people answer questions with questions. We don't answer questions with answers. Why shouldn't we? Oh, good. All right. Okay. I, I mean, I remember uh, conversations with my relatives. It would go like this. Grandma, how's the weather? How could the weather be in Florida? That's in the south where it's very warm. Sorry, I should have explained that. Um, Uncle Murray, how's your family compared to who? Aunt Vivi, how are you doing? Why do you ask? That's just how Jewish people are. And so when I started reading the Gospels as a 20-year-old second-year university student, um, I, I, I felt perfectly at home with how often Jesus answered questions with questions. Do a study of it sometime. Look at how Jesus answers questions. You'll find that more than half the time he doesn't answer, at least not right away. And so very often his approach of not answering is responding with a question. Do you remember? They said, is it okay for us to heal on the Sabbath? And he said, well, if you had an animal that fell into the ditch, wouldn't you pull it out? Or they said to him, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, let me see a coin. Whose face is on the coin? 
They said, is it lawful for us to get a divorce? He said, what did Moses write? Um, that style was not just Jewish and not just rabbinic. It was brilliant for engaging people in the answering process. By the time he did state an answer, they were further along in their struggle. So very often people ask us questions, and then they just sort of watch us at arm's length to see, watch us squirm and how we wrestle. But if we answer a question with a question, if we make it more of a conversation, a dialogue, we will watch them engage and move gradually in the answering process with us. So one of my favorite illustrations, really stunning, is in Mark chapter 10, where the rich man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember it? I often think the disciples must have heard that. And in the background, they said, take out the booklet. Uh, can you think of a better straight line for a, for a gospel presentation? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, sit down. Let me show you the flip chart. Uh, but no, what did Jesus do? You remember? He answered a question with a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, why do you call me good? Now the disciples are going, oh, he blew it. He blew it. What, what, what kind of an answer is that? Um, what, what did that do, by the way? It engaged the man in the process of answering. You read the rest of that conversation. The man already thought he was righteous, didn't he? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When Jesus quoted just a few of the commandments, the man said, all these things I've done, I've kept since I was a youth. Can you think of anything more arrogant than that? More self-sufficient? Mark tells us Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Maybe we'll take a little break right now and turn off our phones. <laughs> I, why not? What do you say? All right, yeah, out comes... Okay. So early on in the day, the inner New Yorker rises to the surface and say, give me your phones right now. Right, right here. <clears throat> Sorry. Let's, let's, let's pray again. No. Okay. Uh, um, so that man, Mark tells us Jesus looked at the man and loved him. Isn't that stunning? And by the way, the, the, the verb there, he looked at the man. He, he saw through to the heart of that man. And he knew what that man needed was to get unhooked from his own self-righteousness. Jesus used that dialogue and loved him enough to make the man uncomfortable, didn't he? Says, the text says the man went away sad. So what we need, I think, is more of a dialogical, two-way, rabbinic style of evangelism. And questions are some of the most important things we can use in that. Um, let me try to prove this a little further uh, for you uh, from the book of Acts. We've looked at uh, some examples in the Gospels. Uh, um, open up to Acts 17. And you might think that I'm going to turn to that great sermon... On Mars Hill later in the chapter, but I'm not. I, I may mention that later. But I want to look at the first five verses of Acts 17. Acts 17, verses 1 through 5. God's Word says this. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom... Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer 
and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. It's as far as I'll go. And I'm not going to be able to unpack everything here, but I want you to see some similarities in our setting today uh, to what they saw there in Thessalonica. And the first is, I want you to notice it says um, that he went back to the same place on three Sabbath days. Do you see that there in verse 2? On three Sabbath days, three successive weekends, three successive Saturdays. And um, what we know from other places in Scripture is that Paul stayed in some places long term. Here's what I'm trying to say. Like Paul's, our evangelism might be more ongoing process rather than just one-shot proclamation. Our evangelism might be the installment plan of let's see if we can get this across and now this and now this. It needs to be more ongoing process. I I don't know of your experience in training in evangelism. My experience was that um, the assumption was people were ready to become Christians. We just needed to invite them. And so the mindset was a one-shot proclamation. And then in the providence of God, I was always assigned within campus ministry to campuses where that didn't work. Never. I I, I spent uh, uh, leading a ministry in Baltimore, East Coast, big city. And uh, all of the stories that I heard of success were in parts of our country in America where, where things worked. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure of the equivalence here, but in America, in the South and in the Midwest, those are sometimes called the Bible Belt. And churches grew and evangelism was fruitful and there were, there, there, things just worked. And so many of the people who got up front and shared their stories, yeah, they were from the South or the Midwest. And I would sit there going, that ain't going to work in Baltimore. Um, and, and, and I would talk to the other, uh, the other people serving in the Northeast where things were much more difficult. And we said, no, for us, it's more of an ongoing process. So that's the first thing I want you to see in this text. The second is I want you to look at the verbs. It says that um, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. In verse 3, it says he explained, he was proving. Um, in verse 4, some of the people were persuaded. Listen to those, those words. They, they, they imply process, don't they? Um, that first phrase, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. It's a beautiful phrase. It's mentioned a number of times in this same chapter and other places. It's this intersection of the scriptures being authoritative statements and then the human kind of dialoguing, reasoning from the scriptures. That Greek word implies dialogue. And so it's this back and forth rabbinic kind of thing, and yet it is resting on the sure word of the scriptures. And that's what we need. And so we, we need to have more dialogue rather than just declaration. Now, to be sure, when the time comes, when people say, okay, listen, could you just state it in a nutshell? What is it that you believe? Then that's the time to declare it in a nutshell, in a minute. But there's maybe a whole lot of dialogue beforehand. So what I'm trying to say is that like Paul's, our evangelism may be more dialogue rather than just declaration. Third thing I want you to see here is that, like Paul's, our evangelism might get mixed reviews. (laughs) It's a nice way to put it. Some people believed, some people had a riot. That sounds like mixed reviews to me. Everywhere Jesus went, he got those mixed reviews, didn't he? Right? Some people said he's the Messiah. We'll drop our fishing nets. We will follow him anywhere. Other people said he's demon-possessed. Let's throw him off a cliff. Everywhere Paul went, 
Um, some people believed. Some people tried to kill him. I, I, I need to track down this quote, so I'm sorry if it's not the most accurate, but I did read one time one of the uh, men who served as the Archbishop of Canterbury years ago said, everywhere the Apostle Paul went, they had a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. Um, we just need to know this ourselves, and we need to prepare our people. You're going to get mixed reviews. You may say the same words, the same, you quote the same Bible verse, draw the same diagram, use the same tool, booklet, whatever it is, and some people will say, wow, this is really great. I need to hear, tell me more. And other people will say, oh, please shut up. We just need to prepare ourselves for that because that's what we see in the Scriptures, and that's what we're seeing more and more in our world, isn't it? And here's why. The fourth point is that, like Paul's, our message, our evangelism might be, for many people, bad news before it's good news. It's bad news before it's good news. I hope you saw it. It's, it's easy to fly past two little words in verse 3, but, but you need to see them. Paul was explaining and proving what? That the Messiah, here it is, had to suffer. Messiah had to suffer. Uh, another translation says, it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. We need to reflect on that a little bit. What, what the text is saying was, it was not just enough for Jesus to give us good teaching. He did give us good teaching, the best teaching ever. Um, but, but if all we had was Jesus' teaching, we, 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 can't, we don't have the ability to obey it. Another way, it, 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 it's not just enough for the Messiah to give us an example to follow. He did give us an example to follow. The problem is a whole lot of times that we know what, what we should do and we don't have the power to do it. I, were these things, was this a big thing for, for a while here, the WWJD bracelets? Are they still like, anyway, they're fine, they're lovely, I, I'm not opposed to them, but what would Jesus do? The problem is I, I never wore one because, because I, I always, I, always I know exactly what Jesus would do and I don't want to do it. <laughs> I'm going to take this bracelet off, I don't know. Or, or, I know exactly what Jesus would do, and I would want to do it, and it's like, you know, I, I need something more than just a bracelet here. I need a Savior, right? We don't just need lessons. We don't just need an example. We need a Savior who dies for our sins and then remakes us into new people, and that is tremendously offensive. The gospel is, is a stumbling block, right? That's why people reject it, because it's telling them that they're, they're in darkness and they can't save themselves. And so, uh, we just need to know that, like Paul's, our evangelism may be bad news for people before it's good news. All the more reason, I think, why we need to make it a dialogue, a, a conversation, a back and forth, a, a gradual progression of moving from darkness to light. So, let me give you a couple of ideas of what I think this can sound like or look like. Uh, I think I'll do three before our first break. Um, and w what I'm hoping is that y you won't think, okay, here, here they are, here are the three magic keys. No, what I'm hoping is I'm just giving you some ideas of what does this kind of 21st century evangelism, uh, dialogical evangelism, what does that look like and sound like? with the idea that that will then spark another 50 ideas of what could that look like. So, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll share a, a principle for us to remember and a, a question to ask. So, the first principle to remember is, there are some people who aren't awake. In our world today, there are some people who aren't awake. They're just not thinking about spiritual things at all. In our world today, 
there's so much distraction and so many things to keep us entertained that we can go for, for very long stretches of time without really thinking seriously about anything. We're an entertainment culture. By the way, underneath that is an assumption that I think some people have bought into, well, why not? There's nothing else to live for. There's no hope. There's no purpose. There's no ultimate big story. So I might as well just be entertained by the latest fun game or story out of the entertainment world. And so there's a lot of people who, they, they just never think deeply about anything, and they're not thinking about spiritual things. And the task of pre-evangelism for us is to wake them up. And here's a question that I like to use to wake people up. When people say something to me like, um, that, that, that indicate to me that they're not awake, they say things like, um, well, uh, you can believe anything you want. Really doesn't matter. You can believe anything you want as long as you're sincere. Have you heard this? Is this kind of big around here? I guess so. All right, so here's a question that I like to ask to wake people up. You might want to write this down. You ready? Here it goes. Really? That's it. Uh, excuse me here. I'm losing. There we go. Okay. Um, uh, all right, so maybe that's not the best way to word it. Maybe it's do you really think so? Do you really believe that? Uh, by the way, this is probably a question you should practice in delivering because it could be really obnoxious. Oh, really? Uh, tone is very important. Uh, but no, uh, people, are, when they say things like, you can believe anything you want, they, uh, many of them have just never gotten past that, and they don't need to. And what we need to do is push past it gently. But do you really think so? You know, uh, do you really believe it's okay to, to believe anything? Um, I don't know how many years ago it was now uh, in, in America, uh, out on the West Coast, uh, there was a, a, a religious cult that believed that when a certain comet went by that they should all kill themselves. And they did. It's a horrible tragedy. I, I very often use that story when people say you can believe anything. I'll say, now, now you, don't, you don't really think that was okay, do you? Or there are far too many examples in our world today of people who say they are religiously motivated to blow up buildings and put bombs in places. And so I say, you, you, you don't think that's okay, do you? And all I'm trying to do is wake them up. By the way, maybe um, it's probably important for me to pause at this point and give some definitions because I, I want to protect the word evangelism. It's a very important word and it's a very precise word. It's, it's the verbal proclamation of the gospel, a very precise message that God sent his son to die for sinners and we need to repent and respond. So evangelism, I think, is a, is a kind of a small category, a very, very important one, but it's limited. There's all sorts of other conversations we need to have. I'll go more into this in the, the second message. But there's a lot of pre-evangelistic conversations we need to have. And what I'm talking about uh, in, these, in these points is the pre-evangelistic side. So we need to be careful that we're talking. So when someone says that and I say, really, do you really think so? In my mind, I'm trying to do pre-evangelism to pave the way so that then I can say, here's what I think is true. So... Um, really uh, is a way of responding when people aren't awake. By the way, I, I now serve with uh, the C.S. Lewis Institute, and by contract, I have to quote Lewis in every uh, message I give. Oh, good, you laughed. I, I, I said this one place, and, and the people didn't laugh, and I thought, I, I was just kidding. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. 
I'm not encouraged about how slow my phone's moving. There, okay, great. So um, uh, you, you probably, at least I hope you're familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, a conversation between a senior demon and a young trainee, and he's trying to tell him how to mess up a Christian. And so you have to read everything in this sort of upside down that, you know, the uh, what this demon says is good is really bad. I hope you're following. Anyway, in the very first letter... This senior demon says to the young trainee, it sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. The enemy is God. Well, that might have been so if he had lived a few centuries earlier. At that time, the humans still knew pretty well when a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as a result of a chain of reasoning. But... What? With the weekly press and other such weapons, we have largely altered that. Your man has become accustomed ever since he was a boy to have a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about together inside his head. He doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but as academic or practical, outworn or contemporary, conventional or ruthless. Listen, he says, jargon, not argument, is the best ally in keeping him from the church. The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. And so very often the task of pre-evangelism is to move the struggle onto the Lord's ground. God who made people in his image with brains to think. Sure, the thinking process has been damaged by the fall. I fully believe that. Um, And yet, there's too many examples in Scripture of Jesus appealing to human reason and logic. And so we want to use that as much as we can. So that's the first one. Some people aren't awake. We should ask the question, really. Second one is, some things just can't be true. People believe some things that will not stand up to investigation. Some people believe things that contradict themselves. And our challenge in pre-evangelism is to ask a question to help them see their lack of consistency in their own thinking. So, for example, very often people say, I think all religions are the same. All religions are the same. They're just different roads up the same mountain, right? You've heard that? Uh, It's very popular. It's it's taught in most secular university religious uh, studies classrooms. Uh, one of the most frequently used textbooks in religious studies classes teaches that, says that, so it's repeated forever. And uh, what we need to do is challenge people of that to shake up their, their confidence in that because it can't be true. It's not true. Do, do you know those, do you, have, do you have those charts about different religions and what they say about God and there's contradictions all over? Do you know what I mean? It's like Judaism and Christianity and Islam and uh, Buddhism and then what that says about God and what it says about the afterlife. And you take out these charts and you see there's contradictions all over the place. They don't say the same things at all. One writer on this topic says they're not different roads up the same mountain. They're not even on the same mountain. But I don't think those charts are really good evangelistic tools. So when people say, I think all religions are the same, do not pull that out of your back pocket and say, oh, no, no, they're not. Look, contradictions all over. No, that's not what you want to do. What you want to do is you want to ask them a question. And a question that can be very helpful is, can you explain that to me? What we're doing is um, we're putting them on the defensive. Now, we must do it gently with, with, uh, with kindness and for many of us, that means changing our tone of voice, our facial expression, and, and praying uh, pleadingly for God to give us a love for people. 
But, but very often we as Christians accept a defensive posture. And very often we need to. I'm not opposed to that. I think that's, the, I think that's what First Peter 3.15 says. Always be ready to give a defense. But sometimes wisdom is to put them on the defensive, to ask them to explain, ask them to defend their indefensible faith. Can you explain that to me? I don't see how Buddhism and Judaism are the same. So what we just need to do is to be willing to, and, and again, uh, there's, there's another dynamic going on in here. When you do this, it will be uncomfortable for you and for them. So what many of us need to do is we need to repent of our love for comfort. No, it's worse than that. Um, we need to repent of our idolatry of comfort. I really like comfort. Um, so, sometimes people say to me, can you, can you tell me something about evangelism so I can be comfortable in evangelism? I almost start laughing. I have no idea what that is. Um, the, the founder of uh, Campus Crusade, Bill Bright, wrote a book called Witnessing Without Fear. In my library, it's with fiction. <laughs> Witnessing Without Fear? I have no idea what in the world that would be. And regularly, I have to repent of my love, of my comfort. Lord, would you set me free from my idolatry of my feeling good about situations? May it be, Lord, that your glory is far more important to me than my comfort. And so when you ask this question, can you explain that to me? For some people, that's the first time anybody's pushed back on them, and they'll find it to be very difficult. For some people, they have thought about it, and then that can start, I hope, a very rigorous conversation with them. But what we need to do is to be able to say, can you explain that to me? Okay, one more principle, and then we'll take our first break. Or maybe not. I don't know. I, one more principle, and then I sit down. That's as far as I remember. So... <clears throat> Uh, so some people aren't awake. Do you really think so? Some people say things that are self-contradictory that can't be true. Can you explain that to me? This is very important and it's very difficult, but we need to remember that some questions are not sincere. Some people are not sincere as they interact with us about spiritual things. There are people who are mockers and fools, and it's very important for us to read the book of Proverbs so we recognize foolishness when we're faced with it. Remember those two Proverbs back-to-back in chapter 26, verses 4 and 5? Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, another translation, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So when people mock you and say sarcastic things, you need to recognize that and not be a fool in responding So if they say, oh, are you telling me that you're the only ones going to heaven? Are you telling me that everybody disagrees with you is going to go to hell? You need to recognize when that's not sincere. It's always at this point in the presentation where everybody feels like it just got 10 degrees hotter. And and you're saying to yourself, he is from New York, isn't he? Um, um, Maybe you don't. So New York Jewish culture is very confrontational. Um, My wife, who comes from a different part of the country and is Gentile, is still recovering after almost 40 years of meeting my family for the first time. Why did, why did they hate each other so much? No, no, that's how we express love. What, are you kidding me? Uh, so apologies if that's... Anyway, so when people say sarcastic, mean-spirited stuff, we need to recognize it. By the way, didn't Jesus do that brilliantly? Um, remember when, when the, he was teaching in the temple and people came to him and said, by, by whose authority are you doing this? He said, well, let me ask you a question. See, there he goes answering a question with a question. 
It says, uh, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Remember this? They go, give us a minute. And they had a little, uh, it's like, well, if we say it was from heaven, he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe John? But if you say it was just from people, we'll have a riot from all these people. That's a paraphrase, I know. But they come back and they say, remember they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I answer your question. There are times not to answer questions. Now, again, you've got, to, you've got to listen to tone of voice. It's not just what the words are, because someone could ask that question I just posed in a very sincere way. They could say, so wait a minute, let me, are, you, are, you, are you saying that people who don't believe this are going to go to hell? That's a very different tone, isn't it? And that might really be sincere. And that may, may be the time to quote John fourteen six and to explain that Jesus is the only one who rose from the dead. Jesus is the only one who atoned for sins. Sure. But if it's a wise guy, sarcastic response, you need to recognize when that is. And sometimes you need to say, is that a real question? Do you really want to talk about this? I, I feel like you're attacking me. I, 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 did I misread that? For, and, and by the way, I, very few of us are brilliant on the spot and can come up with these kind of things like that. I don't think anybody can, or very few. You need to brainstorm outside of these situations and figure out, what, what could I say? So for years in campus ministry, I was struck by students who said things like, are you telling me that everybody who disagrees with you is going to go to hell? And, and I, I tried the sincere approach, and I quoted John 14, 6, and I tried to unpack it, and it didn't work. Like, like fools that they were, if I didn't respond right, they went away wise in their own eyes. Yep, that's what I thought. Christians are idiots. And so I, I, I got together with a friend and said, okay, help me think. What, what are some ways that I could respond? And we brainstormed a bunch of ideas. And I thought, okay, I need to try that out. So then one time I'm in a, in a, a dorm room in a Bible study, a small room. There were um, uh, four Christians who uh, were at the Bible study and then four atheists who came that week. I don't know if it was uh, invite your atheist friend to Bible study week, but they did. They were, they were there. And I was in the middle. And uh, this guy sitting right here as close to he said, are you telling me that everybody who disagrees with you guys is going to go to hell? And so having thought about this beforehand and prepared, I said, well, do you believe in hell? He went, huh, what, huh, what? Well, do you, do you believe in hell? He said, no, I think it's ridiculous. So I said, so why do you care? He said, huh? I said, why are you asking me about a place that you think doesn't even exist? Why does this bother you so much? You seem to be upset. And I was like, oh, okay. Quickly, one of his friends said, well, I do believe in hell. I said, oh, okay, good, we agree on that. Do you think anybody's there? It's an important question, by the way. Yeah, I think so. All right, so... Um, uh, do you believe in heaven? Yeah, I think so. All right. Are there people there? Yes. Who decides who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? You know what he said? He said God. He was an atheist three seconds before that. Like, wow. I was tempted to say, sorry, you can't use that answer, but. Okay. Uh, all right. Okay. So God decides. Um, so he, he was an atheist. Now he's a theist. I like this. It's very good. I said, so how, how does God decide? You know what he said? He said the Ten Commandments. That's a very common answer. But by the way, now I'm very encouraged. Now he's an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> so it's moving in a very productive direction. All right. Okay. The Ten Commandments. I like them. I'm in favor of them. I said, do, do you have to get all ten right your whole entire life? What happens if you mess up once? You're only at nine out of ten. Or eight out of ten. Does God grade on a curve? By the way, you know, Jesus had some things to say about adultery and lust. 
And, and, you know, and, and one of the commandments is coveting. That's just that's like, like if, you, if you just slip up and covet, you're out. What, is there some other way? And then that became a great conversation. What started as an insincere, sarcastic question became a great gospel conversation. We need to recognize foolishness when we see it. We need, we need to recognize it when it's welling up within us. Remember the proverb says, uh, don't answer for lest you be like him. Uh, we don't need more fools yelling and being sarcastic with each other, do we? No. So I'm hoping these ideas spark a whole bunch of other ones. I'm going to share some more in the next talk. But um, at this point, let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom. Your, your word says that if we ask for wisdom, you'll grant it. So would, would you give us wisdom as to how these ideas from Scripture work out in our specific settings? Uh, I don't know all the many places that my brothers and sisters are here from today, but you do. And you know the wisdom that they need, and you know what will be uh, used by your sovereign, powerful hand to advance the gospel. Would you work um, in our minds and in our hearts today so that more and more people will be joining us in praising Jesus? And we pray in his name. Thanks. Great. We're going to have um, the Good Book Company come and give a notice about resources. So uh, let's do that as we do that. Uh, have you got notebooks, everybody? Um, we, we didn't publish them. We've got, if you haven't got a notebook, I know that there is a Ryman's nearby. So if you want to ask at the back, they can tell you that. Great. Good book. Wonderful. Good morning, everyone. I'm not sure if I'm on this microphone or on the, on the handheld. That's better. Good. <laughs> uh, good morning. Nice to see you all here. Welcome again. Um, as Good Book Company, it's our uh, privilege to be supporting this conference once again this year. Uh, we've got a hand-picked selection of uh, books for you, uh, which are going to support you, uh, support your church family uh, in your evangelism. Uh, they're all at great prices, so you won't find any better deals than those we've got for you today. Uh, and if you haven't spotted it yet, the bookstall is in the back uh, far right corner. Um, can I firstly, though, uh, pick out some particular highlights for you? Uh, and I hope we've got them coming up on the, uh, on the screen. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's certainly not books and not even the text from them, sorry. Okay, so, I think we've gone past that. And back, uh, <laughs> great, okay, we're, we're there. Who loves technology in this, uh, in this 21st century, hey? Um, so firstly, uh, some books by our speaker, uh, Randy Newman. Um, many of you, I, I know, will probably be aware of uh, questioning evangelism, uh, but there are three other uh, of Randy's titles I want to flag for you. Um, Unlikely Converts, uh, which launches in the UK in January next year. Um, do you know people who uh, seem so far off from God, so antagonistic uh, to the gospel and so deep in unrepentant sin uh, and so angry with God that uh, you can't see how they could ever be uh, reconciled to him and become a Christian? Um, I think we all know, I was going to say one person, but several people probably uh, like that. Um, well, this is a book of stories of similar people who became Christians, uh, and Randy draws out lessons uh, from them as we, we learn uh, we can share the gospel um, to pe with people who have just seem so unlikely uh, to respond right now. How can we keep going with them? How can we persevere with them uh, and keep on pushing them uh, down that road? Uh, the second one uh, is bringing the gospel home. 
sharing the gospel with those uh, who are closest to us. Uh, Randy knows what it's like to have uh, family members uh, who are not believers. Uh, the first unlikely convert mentioned in this book, I think, is, is your dad, um, who, before his death at the age of uh, 90, um, became a Christian just a short time before that. And so this book is about sharing the gospel with those uh, kind of closest to us. And that can sometimes be uh, the hardest, isn't it? It's hardest to do something with somebody you know, perhaps, than uh, somebody you don't know quite so well. Uh, and engaging with Jewish people. Um, the engaging series uh, all works in the same way. It's about understanding uh, people's world, people's culture, uh, and then thinking about the most effective way of engaging uh, with them and sharing Jesus with them. The unfortunate news uh, today is that uh, due to limited supplies in the UK and the veracity with which some of those books were hoovered up at All Souls on Tuesday, um, we're probably going to have to take uh, orders for those uh, due to uh, reprints being done, logistics from the publishers. But what we will do, as I say, is to take some orders from you. We'll honour the conference prices, which you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else, and we will ship them free. So do come and talk to us about that um, during the day. Uh, moving on, uh, there are some books that uh, are good to give to our unbelieving uh, f- family and friends, if we could have the... Uh, that's it, lovely. Um, finding more uh, as a starting point. This is a bit like Randy's Unlikely Converts, but really more for non-Christians. Stories of people who've been looking uh, for something, something more in their lives, and have found it in Jesus. Um, People love reading stories, so it's a great way of engaging with some non-Christian friends. And as you'll see, there's a a special deal on buying uh, three of those today. And alongside that, um, a great new series of books from Ocker. Um, They were also written with non-Christians in mind, but they're questions that uh, people are asking, especially people at the uh, younger end of the age spectrum. Uh, Can science explain everything has just been named the evangelistic uh, book of the year, uh, and dare I say, it's probably the most accessible book uh, I've read by John Lennox, um, and I, I think that just says it all. It is, re- it is really, really engaging. It's really, really accessible, um, and John explores what he's uh, maintained for a good number of years, but in a much more uh, accessible way for, for non-Christians. Um, Am I Just My Brain? Explores conscience, uh, the idea of conscience and the soul, and is Jesus' history uh, has just come out. This is a question people are asking, isn't it? How, how can we prove that Jesus lived? People uh, ask how Jesus, did he really exist? Uh, and John answers it pretty easily, uh, and then really ends up with another question to answer, not did he exist, but who was he? Uh, and takes a look at that uh, in this book too. Uh, and next, you've, got a, you've had a preview of it already, uh, Little Me, Big God. Um, great little books for giving away. Uh, lovely stories for toddlers at the front, and then a short gospel presentation uh, towards the back. Absolutely brilliant. Give them out to parents, give them out to toddler groups, to Sunday school groups. Uh, they're great little easy reads uh, to, to get somebody engaged with the gospel. Uh, and finally, uh, The Gift. Uh, designed to be given away at Christmas. Uh, it's a Christmas evangelistic book. And today, we'd like to give you a gift. We'd like to give you a copy of that free of charge. Uh, we're not going to uh, t- uh, charge anything for it. Uh, we're not selling them. But feel free to pick one up, have a look at it, take it back to your churches, um, show it to your ministry team, 
And if you like it, come back to us and order more to give away at your Christmas events and stuff going on in that Christmas period. Um, So do come and chat to us today. look forward to uh, meeting you all. Um, Thank you very much indeed.